This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 20 of AFF On Air. It's Saturday the 21st of September 2019 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In today's episode, I chat once again to Mark Ross-Smith, the former head of loyalty at Malaysia Airlines and an expert in loyalty programs and data about the recent ACCC report into Australian loyalty schemes. The ACCC has made a number of claims about the practices of frequent flyer programs in Australia, some that I agree with and others that I don't. And in this extended interview, we dissect the ACCC's recommendations and discuss what this all means for the travelling public. I tend to look at the kinds of issues raised by the ACCC from a consumer point of view, whereas Mark often sees things from an airline's perspective, so I'm sure you'll find it quite an interesting discussion. But first up, let's have a look at what's making news on Australian Frequent Flyer this fortnight. And the major changes to the Qantas Frequent Flyer program announced back in June took effect last Wednesday. The number of Qantas points required for upgrades in classic flight reward bookings in premium cabins has now increased, but carrier charges for Qantas bookings in premium cabins have been somewhat reduced. The carrier charges payable to Qantas, which are in addition to all of the genuine government and airport taxes and fees, have been reduced now to $700 on a round-trip business or first-class booking to London, to $430 on a round-trip booking to the Americas in business or first-class on Qantas, or $330 when flying to the Americas in premium economy, to give a few examples. You can find a full list of the new Qantas carrier charges in the article that I've linked in the episode notes. Qantas did also promise that it would add over a million extra award seats annually as part of this year's program overhaul, although we're yet to see any evidence of this, much to the annoyance of quite a lot of frequent flyers. Meanwhile, Thai Airways will carry out a massive devaluation of its Royal Orchid Plus frequent flyer program at the end of this month. The airline is uh, selling the changes as rewarding customers with more miles and more award flexibility, but in reality, the value in the Royal Orchid Plus program is being absolutely gutted. From the 1st of October 2019, some one-way awards will now become more expensive than the current round-trip award rates, and the Star Alliance Round the World Ticket in Business Class, just to give you one example, will increase from 340,000 to 725,000 Royal Orchid Plus miles. Upgrades are also becoming drastically more expensive. As far as I'm concerned, the 1st of October will mark the day that the Royal Orchid Plus program no longer holds any value for Australians if these changes go ahead. And if you have any existing Royal Orchid Plus miles, now would be a very good time to look at redeeming those. Virgin Australia has revealed its plan to buy back the 35% stake in its Velocity Frequent Flyer program that it sold to Affinity Equity Partners back in 2014. Virgin will pay Affinity $700 million to regain full ownership of its frequent flyer program, which is around double what Affinity paid around five years ago. Qantas has come under fire over the compensation amounts it offers to passengers that receive an involuntary downgrade from their booked class of travel to a lower cabin class. For starters, Qantas does not even have a policy that's accessible to the public or even to travel agents, so customers have no way to know what to expect. So we did some investigating, and once we found out what Qantas's policy actually is, it became pretty clear why Qantas is trying to hide it. 
For domestic flight downgrades, Qantas will only offer you the difference between the business class fare and the most expensive, fully flexible economy class fare as compensation. And in many cases, this this may mean that you don't actually receive any compensation or very little compensation because the fully flexible Y-class airfare is usually very high and much higher than the cheapest economy ticket that would have probably been available when you booked your flight. On international flights, Qantas will refund 50% of the ticket price, which in many cases is also grossly inadequate given the huge price difference between business and economy class. Business is usually much more than double the price of economy on most long-haul routes. The only exception would be tickets booked in the European Union, which would qualify under the EU laws for a 75% refund, which must be paid by Qantas within seven days. If you are downgraded on a Qantas flight, keep in mind that you don't have to accept the airline's offer of compensation. You can request instead to be reaccommodated in your original class of travel on a different flight if you wish. This is set out in Qantas's Conditions of Carriage. Qantas has applied for both of the new slot pairs that are available to Australian airlines at Tokyo's Haneda Airport from the end of March next year. Qantas says that it plans to operate double daily flights from Sydney to Tokyo Haneda and also to move its Melbourne service from Narita Airport to the more convenient Haneda Airport. Haneda is generally preferred by business travellers because it's closer to Tokyo and has better transport connections. In a surprising twist, Virgin Australia has also applied for one of the two slot pairs and if Virgin is successful, this could see the airline launch daily flights from Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane to Tokyo. Currently, Virgin's only long-haul destination in Asia is Hong Kong, a destination that it's struggling to make a profit flying to. It's now up to the International Air Services Commission to assign the slots, and they have until the end of October to do so. Qatar Airways is opening a brand new premium lounge at Singapore Changi Airport. It will be the fourth one-ward lounge in Singapore's Terminal 1 after the British Airways Lounge, the Qantas Business Lounge and the Qantas First Lounge, which is due to open at the end of this year. The Qatar Airways Singapore Lounge is scheduled to open early next year. Air New Zealand has dropped an application to trademark the logo of its in-flight magazine, Kia after a backlash from New Zealand's Maori community. Kia means hello in the Maori language. Air New Zealand CEO Christopher Luxon said that he didn't mean to offend and he only applied for the trademark after another company named its digital magazine by the same name as Air New Zealand's. And if you're thinking about travelling to Europe next year, now is the time to book. Many airlines are currently offering great early bird airfares for travel to Europe next year and there are some super deals available out of most Australian cities until the beginning of October. That's what's making news this fortnight. For more regular news, updates and deals, be sure to subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. And I'll be back in just a moment with today's interview. Hi, this is Clifford Reichland of the Australian Frequent Flyer. Are you having difficulty in redeeming your Frequent Flyer points? Did you know that Matt manages the popular award flight assist service from Frequent Flyer Solutions, our sister website? This personalized service makes it easy for you to get where you want to go for the minimum amount of points. Go to frequentflyer.com.au for more.
On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined once again by Mark Ross-Smith, who was a guest in episode 14, all about the Qantas frequent flyer changes. This time, Mark's joining me to discuss the ACCC report that came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Now, Mark is a senior loyalty consultant at New World Loyalty. He also is the former head of loyalty at the Malaysia Airlines Enriched Frequent Flyer Program, and he's the editor of the website Travel Data Daily, which is all about how loyalty programs can use data to improve their products. So he's definitely a a good and well-informed guest to discuss some of the ACCC's concerns. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Hey, Matt. Great to be back. So, Mark, the ACCC made a number of recommendations in their 107-page report, which both of us, we were just discussing before, have read in full. And the the changes, just for the benefit of our listeners, that they're recommending are they firstly, they want to improve how loyalty schemes communicate with uh, customers and they present their terms and conditions to customers. They also want a prohibition against unfair contract terms. They want to improve the data practices of loyalty schemes. So, for example, through clearer privacy policies, the ending uh, the practice of linking your credit card to your supermarket loyalty account. They also want loyalty programs to disclose how data is being used and who is it being shared with. And they also want broader reforms to the Privacy Act. So it's quite a far-reaching, comprehensive report with some with some significant recommendations in there. Do you agree overall um, from your perspective uh, with the recommendations, Mark? Look, there's a number of broad themes covered in that document. It goes a little bit deeper than just the uh, like, so four or five recommendations. You know, they talk a lot about how data is being used, how data is shared with other companies, uh, transparency of rewards. They talk about breakage and loyalty program economics. And for the benefit of anyone that doesn't want to read through the 107 pages, plus the additional 83 pages of the consultant study provided by uh, Loyalty Rewards Code, 90% of the document rails on about airline loyalty program and largely passes over the the thousands of other smaller loyalty and rewards discount programs in Australia. And it's important to understand that Australia is a small country and the two airline loyalty programs in Australia are relatively small on a global stage. And no other country has any specific guidelines or or laws or regulation around loyalty programs specifically. And with that in mind, it, it kind of in my mind, raises question is what the ACCC is really trying to achieve on focusing such a, on such a tiny, 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 tiny piece of, the, of, of all the problems in the world. Yeah, the ACCC in particular expressed a lot of concerns over the privacy of members' data with loyalty programs, and um, one of the major sections was on data privacy. You would have quite a bit of experience with this, Mark, so I'm just wondering if you could explain to our listeners, how do airline loyalty programs actually use members' data? Yeah, look, there's a really good article a couple of days, uh, a couple of weeks ago, sorry, from Gary, Gary Left from View from the Wing, and he talks about how privacy policies are pretty useless when it comes to any website or app that deals with personal data. There's different types of data that airline loyalty programs collect. So there's, there's to start with, this personal data or first-party data. So this is your name, your email address, your date of birth. This is stuff that you own as, as a person, about you as a person, right? The second category of data is pro- program-generated data, uh, accrual data, transaction history. So this is your points earning, your status credit earning, ticket numbers, things like that. Then there's the, a third type of data, which is passively collected data. So this is you know, your IP address, the cookie, the session data as you move around the website and the app. And it also includes things like 
video footage of you in airline lounges and in the airport. So this it started that the airline is passively collecting, uh, but they have it. It's there. Yeah. The fourth type of data is, and this is where the, the report really gets into, it's the inferred data. So what uh, a lot of airline pro- programs are doing is they, they get, for example, a piece of first-party data, and they get a piece of data from another company, and they kind of mix those two together. And when they mix these two pieces of data together, it creates, creates like a, a, a new baby, right? It's a, it's a new piece of data that didn't exist before they created and that newly created data is not owned by the individual. It's owned by the airline. Um, there's, there's a whole uh, section on the GDPR in Europe around this as well. And, this, and that newly created data is very firmly, it's, it's considered proprietary and owned by the airline. And look, every airline, every business, every loyalty program, they have different insights or different inferred data that they can generate from this. Uh, I'll give you a really basic example of what uh, a, a lot of big companies do now is you're surfing around on, on the airline's website and you're not logged into your frequent flyer account and maybe the, 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 the airline for some reason wants to know the age of this person surfing their website. So every time the page loads, there's a bunch of variables that, that could be scraped out of that page. So, you know, IP address, cookies, uh, the type of browser you're using, the operating system you're on, um, your ISP, your location, all sorts of stuff, right? And one of those is very simple, is the font size that you're using in your web browser. And so there's a lot of research to show that if your font size is oversized 14, then you're likely to be above 50 years old because the idea is, you know, your eyesight's not as good anymore, so you're increasing the font size in your browser so you can read the web page a bit better. And so that's one way that they're creating, it's inferred data. So they think that you're over 50 years old because you've increased the font size. It's, it's still a guess. They really can't say 100% yes, this this user surfing the site right now is 63 years old, but based on statistics and averages, they can say that most people that have a font size over this size is above this age. I had no idea that was even a thing. That's fascinating. Uh, that's this. Wow. Uh, do you think that most um, people would actually realize that their data is being collected in this way? Uh, look, I think there's been enough privacy data data breaches hacks over the over the past few years you know we've seen british airways cathay pacific whole bunch of airlines i mean even facebook linkedin I, I look at pretty much every tech company's been hacked at some point passwords are out there data is out there and we live in this world where there's less and less data privacy for lack of a better word than, than ever before so I, th- I think as long as consumers are getting our a benefit out of the product they're using, they kind of accept that you have to give away some information. And what the company does with that information, as long as they're not selling, you know, your, your DNA to another company or something really, really intrusive, uh, it, it's kind of like a cost of doing business with that company. There's, there's really no way around it in, in the world today. Yeah, and I guess it would probably either say or imply in some way in the privacy policy that this was being done, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, after reading the ACCC report, they they had some examples in there of the way data is collected. Like, for example, if you're lo- if you're in the Qantas lounge and you're using the Qantas lounge Wi-Fi, or even if you're logged into the Wi-Fi on a Qantas flight, they actually collect data about um, your what what pages you're on and and all this other stuff. And uh, there was another thing that the ACCC report found, and that was that if you are shopping at uh, Coles or Woolworths and you 
even if you don't scan your flybys or your Woolworths rewards card, they can still, if you've previously paid with a credit card at the same time as uh, as scanning your rewards card on a different shop, they can still track you um, and track your spend just based on your payment card, even if you don't scan the card on that shop. And I mean, it does actually say that this is um, is happening in the privacy policies, but I, I don't think too many people would read um, the privacy policy, which is often very, very long and confusing. So I guess that's um, one of the reasons for the report. Mark, to what extent do you think airlines are using data also to personalise airfares or to send targeted offers to members? Look, um, personalised offers are pretty standard in airline loyalty. Uh, In fact, I don't know many airlines that are doing blanket emails to their entire database anymore. It's pretty drilled down on sending an offer to a customer that they think that customer is going to open the email, they're going to click the email, they're going to engage with the offer, they're likely to purchase that offer, or maybe sometimes um, offers are sent to people knowing that that person will forward an email on as well. So this is pretty normal in, in, in the internet business in general, not just airline loyalty programs. And it's important to remember that airline loyalty programs are fundamentally marketing agencies. That's what they do. I, I don't know of any airlines that proactively analyze each individual customer as they're searching for flights and say, oh, this is John, he's, he's got, he's really rich, let's, let's show him a different price when he's trying to book a flight. We'll only show him $25,000 first class flights in London. This doesn't really happen at all. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of offers around closed user groups. So a, a certain you know, a demographic or a certain company or a certain industry might be targeted with promotional fares. And sometimes the airline can take out uh, inventory that is shown to these members. So when they go to book, maybe they don't want this particular group of people to book uh, deep discount economy fare. So they cannot show that on the booking engine. As long as they're not being deceptive by saying this is all the options available, they're just saying, look, here's a special offer for you. It's a discount or it's got a value add on these types of fares. So there's, there's no deception there. It's really just targeting the right offer to the right group that the airline knows that this group is most likely to buy these fares. And then uh, look at things like the popular double status credit offers that both the Australian Airlines offer. Um, they're targeted to individuals and a lot of this can be driven by what's called a share of what or share of spend. And that's that I think most most sophisticated airlines in the world today will track how much you fly their, their airline versus how much you're flying a competitor's airline. Uh, and if you start flying a competitor's airline more, they can start sending you offers you know, to try and win you back onto their own airline, uh, airline product. So this is, this is pretty standard. It's been going for quite a long time. Uh, so it's it's all just about smart digital marketing, really. Okay. Well, for anyone that's listening that is uh, trying to get a better double status credit off from Qantas, I guess the lesson is fly with a competitor and then make sure Qantas knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just, just back on the, the topic of personalized airfares, I'm aware of there's, there's products like Armadeus Dynamic Pricing in the market, which um, actually they... Armadeus sells this product to airlines and they promise that they're going to increase the revenue of the airline by up to 7% by personalizing airfares um, based on what they think people are, you know, sh- showing the fare that they think the person is going to be willing to pay and uh, also also using a lot of other factors like competitive fares and and uh, various other pieces of information to try and determine the perfect fare. From what I understand from what you've told me, this would be done mostly um, by using aggregate data rather than tracking individuals' um, flight search history and that kind of thing. Would that be about right? 
Yeah, there's a lot of revenue management involved in these things as well. Like Amadeus has a, a lot of products and they're, they're all very good. And there's, there's a lot of configuration, a lot of variables, a lot of, you know, if this, if that behind the scenes. Uh, but, you know, like I said, they, they're not looking at people on the individual level and saying, this guy can afford it, let's charge him more. That, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not at that level that, that, that people think that it's, it's, it's creepy and hyper-personalized like that. Yeah, and I can imagine putting in the amount of resources to try and personalize FS to every single customer would probably cost more than uh, it would be worth in extra revenue. So, no, that, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, the C report also specifically identified carrier charges as an issue. And carrier charges, or as they used to be called, fuel surcharges, have often been a pain point for frequent flyers when they're trying to redeem their points. You know, you'll go to book a business class ticket to London using your points and you'll find that the taxes are almost $1,000, taxes and carrier charges. And I guess the issue that uh, this is something Australian frequent flyer has covered quite extensively in the past. The issue we've had is not so much the fact that the carrier charges exist. I mean, that's also uh, quite frustrating, but it's been more so the lack of transparency. I mean, with Qantas, they don't actually publish a list of the carrier charges anywhere. And the only way that you can find out what the carrier charges are going to be on any particular booking is if you do a dummy booking on the Qantas website. And even then, they'll only show you what the taxes and carrier charges are if you already have enough points in your Qantas account to make the booking. So it's for someone who's starting out with the Qantas program, they're more than likely have no idea that they're going to be slugged all of these extra charges when they actually try to redeem their hard and points from your perspective having run an airline frequent flyer program mark well firstly do you think that carrier charges should be outlawed outlawed is a strong word matt uh <laughs> look do i think they should be removed um like me me as a consumer as and as a frequent flyer that's sort of like asking do i want a free ferrari of course i do uh, but there's always unintended consequences that might outweigh the benefits of the, uh, the, the percentage of people that who could benefit from this sort of regulation around it. Uh, look, for Qantas, to a certain degree, the carry charges act as a co-payment in some ways, uh, where if, if these carry charges went away, then airlines might look at other ways to recover some of that revenue for a flight. Because you've got to remember, if, if you're booking an award flight, especially if it's on another airline. So if you're using Qantas points, you want to fly from uh, Sydney to Hong Kong on a Cathay Pacific in a business class. So what's happening in the background is Qantas is buying a business class seat off Cathay Pacific. And all these airline agreements are all different across across the alliances and different partnership agreements. And the, the rate that Qantas pays Cathay is based on many, 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 many variables. And it, it could be cases where Qantas if, if you were to reverse engineer the number of points you needed and, say, and you were to, to say every point is worth X number of cents, then it could be a case where Qantas actually loses money on the redemption, like, as in they're paying Cathay more than the value of those points that are created into the system and the cash that Qantas has generated, right? So this is, this is a very real scenario. And if Qantas didn't have some of these carry charges there to offset that loss that they otherwise had with that example of Cathay Pacific, they may have to bump up the number of points required. And let's face it, it's a lot easier to, to chip in a few bucks and pay, pay a few dollars in carry charges than it is to go out and try and earn another 20,000 points. A lot of people have, have cash available. You know, cash is, is like commodity, right? But airline points, airline miles, they're, they're a bit harder to earn. And so it's generally accepted around the world that, uh, in my experience with Malaysia Airlines as well, 
that uh, uh, people have a higher tolerance for paying more in cash and less in points because they want to save up their points also for the next trip. But with that, with that in mind, if, if the carrier charges are necessary, as you kind of imply, do you think that airlines should at least be forced to display what the charges are on their website? I mean, the way that Qantas doesn't show the carrier charges now is a bit deceptive in my view. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's deceptive, Matt, but it's, <laughs> look, it, it would be nice to know up front. I, I, I agree. Look, then, then you can kind of more accurately evaluate as a consumer which redemption is best for you. You know, maybe you, you're just starting a loyalty journey and you're deciding, do I join Velocity or Qantas? And, you know, if I join Velocity, I earn 300,000 points. This is what I can do with it, and this is how much it's going to cost me in, in, in other taxes, fees, and charges. And if I go down the Qantas route, this is – this is what it's going to cost me. And so you could, it's, it's more you can compare apples and apples then, whereas I, I, do, I do agree there could be a bit more transparency. Even if it's as simple as bringing that price towards the front of the booking flow so you can see it early in the process. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. And, I mean, as, as long as it's transparent and, and consumers know what they're going to be paying and so, as you say, they can make fair comparisons between programs and maybe decide whether they want to earn Qantas points or be it any other airline's points in the first place, I think then that's fair enough. Mm. So another thing that was brought up in the ACCC report was the expiry of frequent flyer points. Um, there were some examples in the report of customers who thought that they had unfairly had their points expire. And I guess the report kind of questions whether points should expire or at the very least whether whether loyalty programs should ha- be forced to go to a bit more effort to inform people before their points are going to expire. Now, Mark, do you think it's reasonable that frequent flyer points should expire? It, well, I mean, let's be clear. Both both the airline loyalty program in Australia, your your points don't expire so long as you're active within a program. So as long as you're earning one point every what was it, eighteen months, I think for for Qantas, then your your points stay there forever. They keep going perpetually extended. Yeah, this is far more generous than other airline loyalty programs around the world. You know, you look at Cathay, Singapore Airlines, even even Malaysia Airlines. They've got a hard three year expiry, which means if you earn a point today, it will expire in three years unless you use it. Like no matter what, there is no way to extend it. So, so Qantas and Virgin are already a- ahead of the, the the rest of the world in trying to be more consumer friendly. And I think we saw just a couple of weeks ago that United Airlines just uh, joined the the train of perpetual expiry as well, where uh, your points won't expire so long as you're active within the program. But I don't I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but back in 2013, the federal government introduced the new legislation around. Um, bank savings accounts for consumers that said uh, if your bank account had been inactive for three years, then the federal government could take all the funds out of your bank and put it in their own fund. So basically, you don't have access to it. If, effectively, it's expiry of your own cash in your own bank account, cash. courtesy of the Australian federal government. Exactly. So the federal government already has this in place for themselves. So it, to try and oppose, I mean, you can you can get that money back. You fill in some forms, so it's it's not gone forever. But uh, I, I think it's a bit rich for the government to say we want to put more regulation on a loyalty currency versus fiat currency in the Australian market. So that's the first perspective. Second thing is, if you're earning points, which don't really cost you anything anyway, you, you take a flight, you're going to pay the same amount with your own points or not. And those points expire, uh, say, 18 months later. Uh, it, if they expire, it means you're not engaged with the program anyway. 
And the program is pretty clear when you join that your points will expire. It's pretty accepted in most loyalty programs around the world that there is some sort of expiry clause in there as well. However, in saying that, I do agree with some points of this draft report in that Qantas especially, they, they could be a little more transparent around when points are expiring. So I think it could be as simple as sending a dedicated email 60 days before your points expire and saying, hey, Matt, your points are expiring 60 days. Here's three ways you can extend your points. Number one, go get a credit card. Number two, take a flight. Number three, et cetera. So get people re-engaged in the program as well because ultimately that's, that's what a loyalty program is there to do is to increase engagement because when engagement is there, uh, the person is spending money with your brand. You know, I tend to agree with that. And I, I actually, I personally accept that, you know, some points will expire and breakage, you know, like it or not, is a part of the business model for most loyalty programs. Um, breakage being the, the amount of points that expire unredeemed. So that means the airline gets obviously the full uh, profit from those points, having having earned some income um, selling the points, but then not having to provide any value back. Um, and I mean, for airlines, it's, uh, I mean, it depends on the airline, but it could be anywhere from about 10% to 30%. I'm sure there's other extremes there. So I don't know, I, I kind of accept that this happens. And, um, and if there was no breakage, if, if points didn't expire, then it might result in a devaluation of the program for everyone else or the active members. Um, but I guess I, I, I agree with your point, though, that the airlines should, and loyalty programs in general, should should go to much more effort to at least inform members. Like, as you say, with an email, maybe two months before their points are due to expire. And a really good example of this is Alaska Airlines. I had a, a thousand miles or something with Alaskan that were going to expire in about a month's time. And Alaskan actually sent me an email saying, your points are going to expire. But here, if you watch this video, uh, it was a two minute video about the mileage plan program, we'll give you a thousand miles and then it'll reset the balance and... Uh, and your miles won't expire. And I thought that was a really good way to get people who might not be uh, currently engaged with the program, obviously they're not engaged if the points are going to expire, to, to re-engage. And, um, and I, I thought it also would create quite a bit of good uh, goodwill rather than um, what we see. And I mean, we see these threads on AFF all the time where people have their points expire um, and then complain that it was unfair and they're never going to fly Qantas again and all this kind of stuff. So... Yeah, that, 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 that Alaska example is brilliant. That's, that's, that's sort of world standard. I, I think every airline should be doing that. Uh, I mean, this report also covers non-airline loyalty programs. So it talks about loyalty programs in general. So this includes, um, you know, like a, a buy 10 coffees, get one free, like a stamp card that you might get from the local coffee shop. And I don't know about you, Matt, but when I go to a coffee shop and I see a little stamp card, there is not, a, you know, 100 pages of terms and conditions that tell me, that when my stamp card is going to expire and if I don't buy a coffee every 18 months, then the card is no longer valid. Uh, these, these kind of small loyalty programs, uh, they, they tend to just a bit of cowboy land by themselves where they'll just change the card. They'll change the color of the card and suddenly they're not going to accept the blue card anymore. That's now it's a red card and any stamps you had on the old card are no longer valid. So I'd actually put more focus on the smaller businesses that, that aren't in the spotlight as much and are kind of getting away with more under, under the radar uh, as opposed to really focusing on airlines because airlines are in the spotlight. Qantas has got, what, like 11, 12 million members now. You know, it's, it's a lot of Australians in there. So they're under a lot of scrutiny. The, the airline industry in general is, is very highly regulated. So they're, they're really, really in the spotlight here. Uh, so I think if this report was to, to look at more of where the attention could be focused on other types of loyalty programs, I think this this could 
um, benefit consumers as well. I'm actually going to stand up here for the little coffee shop loyalty cards. I, I worked at a coffee shop when I was in high school and we had the little stamp <laughs> cards, you know, buy six coffees and get one free. And there were no terms and conditions, no catches, you know, buy six drinks and you get a free one. It's actually quite a good deal. We had a lot of people use them and we never changed the stamp or the color of the card <laughs> or anything like that. But um just going back to the different um, models that airlines use for the expiration of points. So you, you touched on this before. There's kind of three three models here. There's like the one that Malaysia Airlines and Singapore Airlines and Cathay Pacific uses and New Zealand as well, where you have a fixed expiry term of miles. They expire after a certain number of years. And then on the very other end of the, ske- on the spectrum, we've got United and um, also Delta Airlines, which um, they don't expire uh, the, the miles of those programs don't expire at all. And then you've got kind of Qantas and Virgin in the middle. Um, for an airline, what what are the pros and cons of the different models and why would you go with one over the other? Wow, this is a loaded question. So, look, it's a, it's a hang-up from back when these loyalty programs were created, which is sort of late 80s, 90s. Uh, so, I mean, back in the day, Singapore Airlines, Malaysia Airlines, and Cathay Pacific, they were, they were all buddy. They were a mini alliance together and they shared a loyalty program. And because of that, when they split out and, you know, Singapore started Chris Fire, Malaysian started Rich, and then uh, Asian Miles for Cafe, they they just kept the same structure, which is why you see these programs all with a three-year expiry. It's just, it's just how it was back then, and it's kind of just stuck you know, as, as it was today. And the way the airline sees it as it, it works, let's, it's not broken, so, so, so why change it? Um, there used to be – there's two trains of thought. One is that breakage or expiring of points is – is a good thing because that revenue is, is realized from the balance sheet straight away. Therefore, it's, uh, it's, it's revenue basically to, to, the, to the business. Um, on the other, other side is that you, you want engagement because in, engagement and redemptions drive more, business, more sales back into the core product. So redeeming points, for example, the, uh, your next um, purchase is highly likely to be on that airline, cash purchase, right? So you kind of want people going around that, that it's, called, it's called a loyalty cycle. Uh, so it's earn, burn, earn, burn, earn, burn, right? So there's, there's two trains of thought here. And it comes down to the airline strategy. There's, there's no right or wrong answer here. So if we look at Singapore Airlines, for example, very profitable airline. If you read through their annual report, you can sort of read between the lines to get an idea of how the loyalty program's doing. It's doing better than Qantas. So... You know, if Singapore, like Chris Buyer is doing better than Qantas in a lot of ways, and they've got a hard three, three expiry, and Qantas has got a rolling 18 months, how do you say which is better? You know, it, it really depends on the strategy for that market, what consumers are embracing, not embracing. And I would argue in Southeast Asia, there's more competition so than, than Australia. So if consumers are still embracing Singapore Airlines with a three-year expiry, uh, it says that it's it's pretty normal, and people uh, understand the, the the rules when they engage in the program, and they they try to use their points as fast as can. And you got to remember these days, you've got more options than ever before to use your points for all sorts of stuff. It's not just flights; these are these are coalition programs now. You can use your points on all sorts of electronics, like headphones, iPads, iPhones, all sorts of stuff. There's no shortage, and there's really no excuse not to use your points on something. Sure, not everyone's going to get a first-class flight to London, but not everyone has 400,000 points to burn on that. But you might have 100,000 to burn on a, a gift card or, or, or some other product. So there's more options to use your points now than ever before in history. So I re- there's really no excuses for, for points expiring 
unless you're just legitimately disengaged and you're not as interested. Yeah, but I mean, everyone knows, of course, you can redeem your miles for gift cards and toasters and kettles and that kind of stuff. But everyone knows that the best value redemptions are the business and first class rewards and upgrades. And I don't, I don't know if it's fair to say that someone would be able to save up in just in three years, you know, the average average consumer for a first class trip to London. Uh, most people save up for for many many years. You know, the, I'm not talking about the people that are taking advantage of credit of credit card sign up bonuses and that kind of stuff. I just mean your regular consumer. And if the points all expire after three years, then it's very unlikely that you're able to actually may, earn enough miles to get these aspirational rewards, isn't it? Yeah, but perhaps in some, I mean, it's some markets, right? In Australia, both airlines, the points don't expire so long as you're active. So it, it it lets people save up points over time, over time. So you can build up, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of points quite quite easily over a long extended period of time. And you can redeem for that first class flight. Uh, it, it's definitely an option. In markets like Singapore, for example, you know, it's a big financial hub. A lot of people have a lot of points there. And... Uh, it's a bit of a program strategy to, to align it the way it is. Okay. And mm. another thing that was raised in the ACCC report was um, the fact that they think it's a bit unfair when loyalty programs change earn and burn rates, um, especially when it affects points that have already been earned, that, you know, the value that person can get when they redeem those points that they've already earned. And often this occurs with only a few months of notice. Um, one example is, as everyone will know, Qantas earlier this week increased the number of points required for all of their premium cabin rewards and upgrades. And uh, another famous example was when American Express back in April changed entirely their membership rewards program, and most people were worse off after that change. Um, so do you think that it's, um, it's fair for airlines to unilaterally and retrospectively change um, the value of a point? <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of a leading question. Let's, I realize. Let's tackle these. Let, yeah, let's tackle these two separately. Yeah, uh, let's tackle uh, card issues and banks first. Sure. Uh, look, if if you're paying an annual fee for your credit card, you you, you kind of under this assumption that you pay annual fee. Let's say it's in January, right? And you get get a full year of of that sort of that contract that you've got with the, with the card with, with the credit card, right? You know that you're going to earn X number of points per dollar. It's transferable into this airline at this rate. That's kind of what you're signing up to. Uh, like in the ACCC report, it quite rightly says that there's a lot of consumers that wouldn't have otherwise signed up for the card if those terms were different. So from the bank changing your earn and burn proposition midway during a membership year, keep in mind, you, you paid an annual fee in advance for the year, right? So if they change the, the, the contract terms halfway through the year, like I think it's, it's more than fair reasonable to expect that you're not out of pocket as a consumer because you entered into this agreement under the assumption of A, B, and C, and the bank's changing the rules on you, right? Even if they're giving six months notice, it still may be within that 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 membership year. So I think banks really do need to up their game here and give consideration, waive annual fees, do, basically do what it takes so that if you pay the annual fee, either uh, may, maybe it's as simple as the, the new structure of earn and burn doesn't come into effect for your account until the next year. That, that may be one way to handle it. Or... Maybe it's doubling your points balance or increasing it to the point where existing points in your account are not affected. So that, that's that's the card issuers and banks. For airline, uh, Qantas specifically, you know, Qantas hasn't increased the the, cost, the points cost for redemption since 2005, which is 14 years ago. And I don't know if you remember, Matt, but 14 years ago, the Australian dollar was trading as the US dollar at a very different rate than it is today. 
Uh, so it, it's fiat currencies uh, sort of going up and down every day, and yet the Qantas point value has been very consistent, very stable. It's been something you could rely upon. Uh, I think Qantas does this very well. They've got this incredible brand in the market, very trustworthy brand, and I think that the loyalty program has built on that trust by not willy-nilly increasing and decreasing the value of the points. And I think look, one change in 14 years, uh, I think this is definitely very reasonable. And Qantas did give a lot of notice. And uh, even <laughs> read the, the threads on Australian Cricket Flag, you see a lot of people getting in to try and redeem their points um, before the changes. So I think Qantas has been pretty, pretty fair and reasonable about this. At the end of the day, it, it is their program. So they, they can sort of dictate these rules. Uh, there's loyalty economics, the background. You know, the world was very different 14 years ago. Uh, fuel price on planes for, for, to fly aircraft is very different than it is today. Um, you know, this inflation, there's all sorts of stuff, and yet the Qantas program has sort of remained very, very flat. So I think consumers have had a very good deal for a very long time with Qantas. There's a bunch of other loyalty programs around the world that, quote, devalue their programs a lot more often. I think Singapore has had two or three in the last, what, two, two or three years, actually. Uh, minor changes here and there, increasing the rates. Uh, so I think on a, on a global stage, I th- look, I think Qantas Virtual actually doing a really good job. I think that they're, they're way ahead of, of the other programs and they're really doing as much as they can to be a good uh, you know, corporate citizen and, and do the right thing by consumers because ultimately that's what loyalty programs rely upon. They need that trust from frequent flyers and loyalty members in their program. If that trust is lost, they, they, it hurts their brand and it, it hurts the – economics of flying and, and all sorts of other stuff so yeah look i, I think the airlines in australia have done, have done a good job so far okay interesting I, I do concede that i do think the Qantas devaluation was um uh, not not too bad compared to the upcoming thai airways devaluation i'm not sure if you're aware thai airways is gonna almost double um, their redemption prices at the first of october for the royal orchid plus program so that's going to be particularly harsh um, and I, I do agree with your suggestion about the, aim, the with credit cards. You know, if if changes don't come into effect until the end of a person's uh, um, annual fee year, that sounds pretty fair to me compared to the current system. I must say. Um, another thing that came up was the fact that um, there's quite a bit of confusion of surrounding booking classes and um, which booking classes do, uh, do earn and don't earn, and what the booking class is, and. It's worth noting that neither Qantas nor Virgin Australia actually display the booking class that you're, of the fare that you're booking when you book on their website. Do you think that airlines should be required to show this? Yes, 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 I do. Uh, Qantas and Virgin, they, they, they link the fare category, what's called a fare family, back into a, a category of earn. And, and it, like, it makes sense. And you can, you can sort of work it out. It's pretty simple. It gets a bit technical when... For example, uh, you're going to book a Sydney to uh, to New York. You know, so you go Sydney, Los Angeles, New York, and the Los Angeles, New York is operated by by American Airlines, for example. And say say you book on Qantas, right? So when you're searching for the flight, you see a Qantas flight and an American Airlines flight. And the Qantas flight is pretty pretty simple. You can kind of work out what you're going to get from that uh, because it's fair and simpler. But the earn on American Airlines into the Qantas program, this is not transparent at all. You really need to know that booking class that you're booked in, you know, because the difference between like a an L class and an S class could mean the difference between, hypothetically, it could be, you know, thousands of points difference. And it could be that you're specifically booking on the American Airlines flight 
to get an extra 10 status credits that's going to help you retain your gold status for that year. And if you, if you don't hit it, um, then there's, there's an argument to say that you wouldn't have booked that Qantasite at all if you weren't going to earn any points. Now, also keep in mind that this only affects bookings on the Qantas website. If you're booking through Expedia or another OTA, they may not display the booking class, and, and then you're, that is even more difficult to figure it out. God forbid you go to a travel agent, a real travel agent, and you and you sort of say, hey, I want to fly Los Angeles on these days. Here's my Qantas Fricker fly card. Make sure I earn points. A travel agent, you know, do, do they know the rules, the ins and outs of the program? Maybe. I hope so, yeah. And, you know, they, they don't have the, the Qantas Fricker fly handbook next to them to go, well, this fair class is going to earn this many points and this one's not. Uh, they're just going to book you the cheapest flight because that's why you're there, to get the cheapest flight possible, right? Um, and so then you need to look at how many people are booking directly through Qantas.com versus how many people booking through other agents. And so even if Qantas was to make a change to show the fare class on a website, there's a pretty strong argument to say that people that are booking direct with Qantas are pretty aware of the program, how it works and the earn structure, and the people booking through other channels are maybe less aware of it. So even changing and putting more transparency on booking classes on the Qantas website may not help these other people that are booking through other channels anyway. That's true, although I do think that putting it on the website would be a, a really good start. In In my article about this topic, which I'll link in the episode notes, um, I post a couple of examples of um, times when people have been burnt by booking classes. One one AFF member actually went to a travel agent and said, I want to fly on a One World airline to Europe so I can earn Qantas points. And the travel agent booked them into a non-earning fare class on Qatar Airways and they earned nothing. And so they were quite unhappy about that. But in another example I've posted, uh, and I posted some screenshots in the article, um, if you go onto the Qantas website and book in, using your example, a ticket from Sydney to New York um, via Los Angeles with um, American Airlines operating the flight from Los Angeles to New York, if you book a flex fare on the website, it shows that you're booking a flex fare. If you click through, it'll say the booking class is flex, but the American Airlines flight could actually be in discount economy. And there's no way that you can know that until after you've actually paid for the ticket. So I think that that's something that really needs to be addressed. Um, and I totally agree with you there. They definitely need to put the booking class. I 100% agree there. Um, the ACCC has also said that um, their big concern frequent flyer programs might be anti-competitive. And in doing this, they've cited a couple of examples, one in Sweden and one in Norway, where uh, the Swedish and Norwegian governments uh, in the early 2000s actually banned frequent flyer programs. So they said that if you fly domestically in this country, you cannot earn any points. And um, the result of that was uh, the introduction of Norwegian into the market and, um, and more competition being created, uh, which I, I found that an interesting example i'm not sure if it's particularly relevant to australia though which are, which does currently have a lot more competition what do you think mark yeah look uh la loyalty's program specifically uh that no they're not anti-competitive at all uh they're, they're a way to protect business and gain new business so they they absolutely they're marketing programs essentially and they absolutely have an effect on the airline it's it's not like uh if you would remove the loyalty program today, then no one would fly the airline. Like they're, they're not that powerful, but they, they are powerful. Uh, I mean, the example in Europe was 2003, I think, or 2004. Uh, you know, the world has changed 100 times since then. And since then, between then and now, you know, Europe has virtually no uh, interchange with the banks. So there's, there's no cobrant, I think it's one or two cobrant credit cards or airlines in Europe now. Uh, low cost airlines have really risen up, and there's, there's really no good. 
uh, low-cost LN loyalty program that can compete. And I mean, let's not forget that ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got a choice of uh, if, if you want to join a program or which program you join. You're not forced to be part of any of them. And in Australia specifically, you know, there are tens of airline loyalty programs that you can join. You can you can join the Cathay Pacific Marco Polo and Asia Miles program and still fly Qantas and then earn Asia Miles. You know, you're not forced to join Qantas Frequent Flyer and credit all your flights to Qantas Frequent Flyer. You can you can fly Virgin in Australia and then credit all your points to Singapore Airlines. You don't you don't have to be a member of Velocity. So there is a very real choice for consumers. So I don't think if, if what the report is getting anti-competitive in that, that it's, it's a very narrow band, absolutely not. Uh, there is many, 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 many options. And that includes not even participating. You know, a lot of people, a lot of companies, they just fly best flight of the day, which is just the cheapest option available, which could be Jetstar or, or Tiger or, you know, Rex. So there's a, there's a lot of different options. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone has to fly one or two airlines. I I agree with you, Mark. And it's also worth noting in Europe, the largest airline by passengers flown is actually Ryanair, which is does not have a loyalty program at all. So there you go. The mm. last question I have for you, Mark, is um, in the report, the ACCC keeps referring to loyalty programs as schemes. The In, in fact, the report is, uh, the title of the report is loyalty schemes. Why are they calling them schemes, do you think? I'm just as confused as you are, Matt. Uh, in my whole career, I've never heard loyalty programs be referred to as schemes. Uh, in fact, I had a quick look through the board just again earlier. There's, there's hundreds of references to all sorts of articles and news reports. And aside from the Loyalty Rewards and Co. report, I can't find any reference to the word scheme anywhere. And in, like just common sense, you, the word scheme has negative connotations associated with it. You know, in a, in a cognitive text sentiment analysis of the word scheme, that would be on the negative scale, not not the positive scale. And given that, uh, I mean, I I put a post on LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks ago about this. It said uh, I, I I think maybe the word scheme is being intentionally used to drive some sort of narrative or gender. I, I don't know if that's the case, but why they would use the word scheme, I'm not too sure. Fair enough. Neither am I. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your insights. It's been absolutely fascinating to to hear um, from the perspective of someone who's run an airline and someone who's obviously um, done a lot with uh, loyalty program data. So thanks very much for coming on AFF On Air. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, that's all for another episode of AFF On Air. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything that was discussed in today's episode, you can check out the episode notes or visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au. And in the episode notes, you'll also find a link to an AFF thread where you can discuss anything from today's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a comment or rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you might be listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. By subscribing or leaving a review, you'll help us to reach more Australian travellers. So I would really, really appreciate that. I'm Matt Graham and I will be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, as always, happy flying.